Hey, folks, Damian Mason coming at you. Before we hop into another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture, I want to tell you about Pattern Ag. Pattern Ag is a company that has pioneered predictive soil analytics. You know, we always treated diseases and pests after they were already in the field, when they were already causing us a problem. But what if you can do this proactively through predictive soil analytics? Pattern has a technology that through their technology, you can say, oh, here's the likelihood that I'm going to have soybean cyst nematode. Here is the prediction on how bad of a risk I face for sudden death syndrome or corn rootworm and a whole bunch of other diseases and pests. When you know what your risk factor is, you can more efficiently and proactively treat for the disease. You can do this by going to pattern.ag and figuring out what your risk factors are through predictive analytics. That's right. Go to www.pattern.ag and then get a hold of your Pattern Ag representative to help you do predictive analytics on your farming operation. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. We have a great topic, great show lined up for you today. We are talking about the future of food. You know, in 250 or 60 episodes, I am often talking about trends that are impacting agriculture. I get on stages all around North America and talk about trends that impact agriculture and I talk about the future. Well, Imagine this, a guy that listens to the podcast named Mike Gomes gets a hold of me a week or two ago and says, hey, this is something you might be interested in. It turns out it's 13 trends compiled over about 27 pages of a white paper compiled by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers all about the future of food. So you know what I decided to do, dear listener? I brought on four people that were involved with the production of this white paper who are members of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to talk about each of these trends that's going to be impacting the future of food. It's futuristic, it's outlook, it's insights from folks in the industry. And you know what? It's going to be a heck of a discussion because I'm going to tell you some of these are right up there with stuff that I talk about already. And some of them I actually disagree with. You're going to like that. Anyway, I want to welcome the panel here. The panel is Mike Gomes from a company called Topcon, Ben Smith with Kubota, Grant Good with Agco, and Kurt Blades, who is the executive director for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Most of you are listening to this because most of you would listen rather than go and watch the videos on YouTube. But if you do like what you're hearing, we will have visuals of each of these trends that we're going to be discussing on the YouTube channel. Simply go to YouTube and type in Damien Mason channel and hit subscribe while you're there. It costs you nothing. You'll see all my stuff uh, for free. All right, guys. Um, the way this worked out, Mike, you you got a hold of me because you're a listener. And you said you need to see this thing. Tell me a little history on this whole 13 trends and the future of food um, paper that was put together by your association. Well, it's actually Kurt could probably handle that that question just because as the executive as the as the executive vice president of AEM, um, Kurt, you want to talk about that one a little bit? I'll I'll I will, and then I'll tee you back over because we like to hear from members more than me. But uh, so AEM, what we came together with a group we have called the Futures Council within uh, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, and what we wanted to do was, you know, there's a lot of people are focusing in on what the future is going to hold. Uh, uh, but it's also really difficult to get the future right. I mean, you all know the story that, you know, Bill Gates's book, The Road Ahead, didn't mention the internet. So it's dangerous business to get into the business of predicting the future. But what we wanted to do to make this unique, because we're always looking out for what, what's happening next in the world, is we wanted to have a very practical approach of what does the future of food production looks like. So we got together a, a group of about 20 
different uh, uh, executives and thought leaders uh, within the uh, equipment manufacturing space to basically go through a whole exercise of sort of you know, visualizing what the future is going to look like. And then we came up with uh, what started off with about 20 different trends. Uh, and then we boiled it down to 10. And then we ended up uh, adding a few more. So we ended up with this paper that really focuses in on these 13 specific trends that are affecting really the next 10 years of, of uh, food production. And the key thing on this is 10 years. So this is industry consensus and it's very practical. So even though, you know, we might agree, disagree on a couple of things here, Damon, I think we can, we can all agree that this is a practical approach to how we're doing this. We're not trying to talk about what's happening 20, 30 years, because that's hard to predict. But there's a pretty good indication that all of these things we're talking about here are very real and very much in front of us today. Well, you throw your you throw your ass on the line a little bit more when you actually say in the next three to 10 years, because then it's like, oh, wait, I'm going to live long enough for this to happen. And so I tell my agricultural audiences in the last, uh, you know, 12 months, I've now I'm back on the road again. I said, I want to give you some history. And we talk about 10,000 years ago, we, we, you know, we're running around gathering berries and, and living in caves. And we invented this thing called agriculture. I said, but you know, when we hybridized corn and brought in mechanization and then by a lot, the last 100 years had more advancement than the first 9,900 years. That's yep. a true story, right? Everybody on this call would agree with that. Absolutely. I predict that the next 10 will have as great of evolution and change and impact on the industry as the most recent 100. And that's saying something. In, in 100 years, we did what 9,900 years took. And then in the next 10, I think we're going to do as much forward progress as the last 100. Does anybody want to take that uh, as, a, as a kickoff to this whole thing? I'll pick that one right. up and, and I'll pick that one up, Damien. And so it was, I, I, I've been a listener of yours for a long time. And so when I saw this paper, I, I, I oftentimes listen to your podcast. Um, uh, and, and so I, I, it kind of struck me of, man, I, I really, this guy and his audience would get a lot out of this. Right. And, and so you certainly, you see, um, we see that, you know, according to Moore's law, um, the idea that that uh, um, processing power gets uh, doubles every couple of years, right? And, and so we're seeing um, that things are moving much and much faster, right? And and I guess the mind blowing part of this is is that while things are moving faster today, they're always only going to move faster right for us and so that's that's saying a lot and and so when you look at what digital ag has happened um you know from precision ag to decision ag and and where digital agriculture is going over the next 10 years and i think this this trend looks at a number of or this white paper looks at a number of kind of the the mega trends that are affecting us and and uh i in many ways i think you're right so let's go ahead and kick off with our first trend that your um, your association's uh, white paper put out there, that in the next 10 years, we're going to be producing more with less environmental impact. Now, we've really been doing that forever. When we went from 35 bushels of corn per acre to 178 bushels of corn per acre, we're not doing that with seven times the amount of natural resources. Generally, every calorie of food we produce now has less natural resources per calorie produced than has ever happened throughout history. So this is something that really... To say it's a trend that you can kick your uh, study off with, it's a good one because it's really what we've been doing for a long time. Grant uh, or Ben, why don't you take that first one? And what do you see producing more with less environmental impact? Yes, sure. we are. And also there's going to be the political part of it and the legislative part of it that we actually are going to be impacted by. So take me there. 
Absolutely. And I can take that one. So um, you're absolutely spot on, Damien. I mean, absolutely not a nutrient in agriculture. Farmers have been doing this for, for centuries. So um, really, I think you look at farming as a business, this inherently happens with economics. I mean, you look at input costs, you look at seed costs, you look at all of the things on the, on the front end and you look at the outcome, people are going to be looking to do more with less and inherently the incentives are going to be there to do that with less environmental impact, whether that's the regulation or economics. I think that's yeah, well, where this thing drives. So you say you say incentive. Most people, when they think of an incentive, think of a carrot, not a stick. I am concerned that what's happening in the Netherlands right now, and I've talked about it on my past podcast, the the and this tends to be it is a political thing. So it tends to be more liberal governments, the liberal government in Canada in control right now in the Netherlands and Ireland. They, they are actually being discussed uh, legislatively forced liquidations of farms to achieve an environmental uh, standard they are setting. I, I don't see that happening in a country with such rich agrarian roots as the United States of America. But you know what? The Netherlands is also the number two by dollar value exporter of ag in the world, and it's happening there. So is there going to be an incentive that's actually a stick to do these things where they say you can't use fertilizer, you can't use liquid nitrogen, whatever this should be? I think it's a very, it's a real fear. I mean, that's sorry, stuff, Stefan over there. It's, it's a real fear. And I think that's part of, part of why we want to say these conversations is that, you know, for, for years, farmers have been able to do more with less, but what we've done a pretty, you know, crappy job of telling our story about this specifically. And then what is really neat about, Precision agriculture specifically is that it enables more of that uh, efficiency than ever before, and it was always driven by the farmer. The farmer invests in precision ag because it makes sense to them makes sense to them economically. However, when you add up every farmer that does precision ag together, you've got a major environmental story on a very positive side. And so I think what's happened really in the last three years within the ag space, we moved from defense to offense. Collectively, all farmers sort of moved that direction, which is great. And that, that really has allowed us to have those positive conversations with regulators and policymakers to say, we're not, you know, we're, we're part of the solution. We're all in this together. You can't have a sustainable farm uh, you, you can't not be sustainable and be in business for over 100 years like many family farms are. So we've always been doing this. We just haven't called it sustainability. We just called it being in business and doing what's right. Right, right. So ahead, if we can get in front of that message, it makes a difference. Ben. Yeah. You know, what I was going to say is, is my dad always said that farmers were the best stewards of the earth, right? Because we rely on, on our soils to be productive. You know, and now look at this is number one challenge, right? And it's a big one. We have to feed the world's growing population. And I know I'm passionate about it. I think all of our panelists on this call are also truly passionate about solving that challenge. And to do that, we're going to have to use less inputs. We're going to have to be very precise in how we use those inputs. And we're going to have to deal with some restrictions now and then. But ultimately, we're going to end up solving this challenge by having more and maximizing the outputs. So when I so think about... This whole thing about producing more with less environmental impact, you know, the number one thing you led off with, with your 13 trends, here's the thing, um, you know, you got to be honest and, and ag and not just be rah, rah, oh, farmers are the greatest. We've never done anything wrong. You know, we've had, 
we've got some sins. You know, there's a thing called the Dust Bowl. That was not that was not some of our best work. Um, we, we've we've thrown some nasty stuff into waterways. That's not some of our best work. But I would say this on the front of using less stuff. I want it to be because of economics, not because of the heavy hand of government. And I think everybody in ag would like that. And I'll give you an example. You know, fertilizer doubled in price going into this crop season. And we got damn good at getting more judicious about our usage of it, because yep. when it's inexpensive enough, you just fling it around. I mean, that's the way all of us are. You, you drive more. um uh, you take more road trips when gas is a dollar ninety nine than when it's a four ninety nine. You use fertilizer less sparingly when it's half price. So I, I think that we're already probably getting there with this less um, uh, fertilizer. I just don't want it to be what's been proposed, like in Canada, the Western provinces. You've got to reduce by thirty percent. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, man. Let me make that decision when I'm when my system allows it, not just uh, uh, arbitrarily. And that's the tough part, I think, for all of us, right? Right, Damon. Damien, I, and, and I think you hit it the nail on the head when you were talking about the Netherlands, right, where they bring out the stick and they say you must reduce by X, right? And in many cases, the amount of nitrogen in, in that you can apply in a lot of northern Europe is certainly the case, right? And But I, I think that one of the opportunities we have here is, is that, you know, the vast majority of farmers that I know, um, they're always doing the right thing and they're always doing the right thing for the environment. And I guess Yes. To me, the data is just documentation of practice. And because more of those farmers are doing the right thing today, it's that and they are doing it with less environmental impact that that utilizing data and creating value around data is the thing that's beginning to get them through this opportunity. Right. And, and, and that that can come in a number of different um, if it can come in a number of different forms. Look, our, our today, you know, the, the topic of the today is it's climate smart and what's the right climate smart practices. And, and so you could begin to see how elements of what agriculture and the regenerative in regenerative agriculture is doing for us can begin to use data as documentation of practice because they've been doing the right thing all along. Right. We're just now able to to show that to more people. Well, I think what's cool is that we talk about, you know, why did the association of equipment manufacturers put this out? Well, there's people that just think that you guys make tractors, but the amount of technology that you're talking about to now to, to trace how many pounds of, of, of a crop input went on which acre, you know, it's neat to talk about the good old days and, you know, Ma and Paul kettle out there, but they didn't have any idea about any of this stuff. And it's, it's you guys, it's your, it's your industry that is driving this. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, that's where I was going, Damien, is really the adoption of precision agriculture is a key enabler of this and, you know, allowing farmers to stay on the, on the front end, but not only, you know, showing and demonstrating through precision ag and data, data logging that, uh, that we're doing this, but also demonstrating and, you know, communicating it, because I think that's where we as an agriculture industry, we like to be quiet sometimes and stay in our stay in our huddle. But we need to, to be, you know, outward with the fact that we are good stewards. We are making good use of things through the use of precision agriculture and trying to make these strides so that we stay ahead of this legislation. And, and I, I mean, again, being um, very I think we should we when when you when you talk to anybody and I do a lot of talking about ag, as you can probably imagine, I try to admit, you know, we're out here giving ourselves pats on the back about how we're making more with less. Well, you know what? So is Apple computer. 
mean, I mean, so 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 is Ford Motor Company. I mean, yeah. the point is, resources are finite and they cost money. And when you answer to shareholders, at some point, business is business. We're all trying to make more with less. So it's not specific only to our industry. It's what businesses do. It's what businesses that are in constant evolution do. Speaking of resources, your number two trend. It talks about optimization of water usage. I want to hear from my friend Ben down there at Kubota. Um, you want to take this one off? Optimization of water use. I have made a prediction that I believe over the next 10 years, we're going to see, uh, first off, a very big need for better utilization of water. Uh, if we are irrigating, it's going to be more technologically influenced. In the old days, you know, I live in Arizona half the year. They Hey, it's a desert. Yeah, but let's just go ahead and dig a canal and fling this stuff everywhere. That's not going to work in a when you've got consumers that are being told not to flush their toilets in California. They're not going to very well drive by uh, a, a, a farming operation where they're just throwing water out. So we're going to get better through, again, technology. Am I right? Who wants to take that out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely take this. Uh, water is a hot topic for me. Uh, I've spent uh, a fair number of years working on the topic of water uh, in a previous experience. And, and what I will tell you is, is you're spot on, right? I also uh, spent a couple of years in California. And one of my favorite things that I picked up from my time in California was a bumper sticker that said, food grows where water flows. And, and that's really an important thing because, yeah, you're right. You know, there are going to be sacrifices made by us all because water is a scarce resource, very scarce. And so as agriculturalists and farmers, we have to be very uh, practical and we have to adopt new methods of trying to, again, get as much utilization out of the water that we do get and also communicating to others, again, on this, uh, this storyline of the fact that Water is an important resource. It's where a lot of our food comes from because without water, we can't grow anything. So I think you're going to see a lot of advancements in technology around, I'm going to use the term precision irrigation, which is not exactly new. It's out there. However, most of that today is adopted in certain things like center pivots. I think what you're going to see is an expansion of that into broader technologies, potentially things underneath the soil where you've got water infrastructure that not only feeds the roots when it's dry, but also takes the water away when you've got too much in certain areas. So it's that management of water and being able to balance that. Yeah, well, you just used a good word right there. It's management because there are times when you have more than you need and there are times when you absolutely are dying for a drink. And so we know that that's the way nature works, but we've done such a good job with the all the other things that we do. We're going to see two-way systems. You know, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. They, they right. still, they, go ahead. Well, and I just, uh, Damien, I'm the, I'm the guy who lives out in California, the land of fruits and nuts, both politically and agriculturally. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I got the opportunity to see uh, firsthand how the adoption of GPS steering uh, enabled drip irrigation, right? And with drip irrigation, you can begin to cut the water in half as well as the fertilizer in half. And in many cases, like you talked about, right, out west, irrigation is about putting water on plants 
in the eastern part of the on, on the other side of the Rockies, it's really about um, a delivery system for fertility, um, for plant uh, for plant protection, right, as well as elements of of drainage, right, and and uh, and being able to manage the surface water so that way you can get the crops where you want to go. And so you certainly you certainly see how these pieces start to fit together, and they're increasingly beginning to fit together in a system of systems approach. How does the irrigation system work with your cropping system work with what you're doing for plant protection right and how do those things roll up to your yield right and 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 your ability to manage whether that's manage the crop in the field or even manage harvest and harvest scheduling as you get down further down the road and i think you know the obviously the, the irrigation technology is one piece of this but i think the the plant and agronomic side is the other piece i mean certainly we're going to see continued you know, expansion of drought tolerant, you know, genetics, we're going to see maybe better crop selection for the region uh, naturally and better use of, of water there. I think that's a big piece of this as well. Yeah. And you know what, again, this is multifaceted approach to this issue. First off, I shot a video in June. We got 1.2 inches of rain the entire month of June here at my farm in Northeastern Indiana. I went to my cornfield down the road and it had been 90 degrees more days than not with a 13 mile an hour to 15 mile an hour wind, which is just about like a convection oven. The video I shot said all the words you've heard about the evils of modern ag and factory farms. If this was 2012, the last drought, this field would be suffering. If it was 1988. This field might not be standing. And sure as hell, if it was 1936, dust bowl years, this field would be down to dust. And yet we had a cornfield that now rain started coming July 4th. It's going to be near record, near record territory. That is technology through seed, right? And the next thing is what I read in your article here that I liked so much. It talked about managing soil for better water retention. Um, we've been guilty of overtilling and we've been guilty of uh, compacting. And those two things do not conserve soil moisture. And so I believe that that is where we're going to see. And that's where your companies come into, you know, you like to, you sell tillage equipment. Maybe we don't need all that tillage equipment. Um, so anyway, give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah it's a, I'll start with this. You know, it's one of those situations where uh, there is a need for tillage from time to time. And there is an opportunity to optimize tillage to do the best job, possible job without doing more than you need to do. Um, and in some respects, we may be able to get to whether it's min-till, strip-till, or potentially no-till when, when warranted. So managing that soil is something, again, I, I go back to, it's, it's the foundation for row crops and for things like wheat and other crops. So doing the best possible job of managing that without uh, over-compacting it is, uh, or over-tilling it on the other side of it is, is mandatory. Well, well, I like a couple of your stats where you said uh, one of your resources says that water supplies will fall 40% short of meeting our global needs by 2030. That's a hard, I, no offense to your stat seeking, but that's kind of like saying, well, there's a 40% chance that's, I mean, we don't know for sure. That just seemed a little arbitrary, but the one stat that was not arbitrary that I liked a lot was that your study about use of precision agriculture, you in the irrigation, and, and you referred to it, Ben, as precision irrigation, 4% reduction in water use. Now you're saying that's not a lot, but what if that's the first reduction? And then through refining the system, we get another 4%. And another, all of a sudden, you start taking 4% four times off, you're down there. It's like, hey, look at that. Same crop, better crops, 
and took water usage down by 15, 20%. And I think that that's where the future of this technology helps us. So Damien, I'll give you the exact facts on this. This is from another bit of research that we did uh, called the Environmental Benefits of Precision Agriculture, where we specifically tried to isolate the amount of uh, water savings that came from precision irrigation and the use of sensors. And over the last 20 years, we said it's a 4% drop, but we say there's another 21%, 21% drop in the use of water just by more adoption of the existing technologies. Right. That's not even talking about the cool technologies that Ben's talking about here. This is just existing technologies. If everyone were to institute sensors and current on the market technologies with a wider adoption rather than just you know watering by the, by the calendar or watering by-, by Well, and schedule. the other thing about this water thing, those are good numbers, is that there are people like me in Northeastern Indiana, there are no irrigated acres around here, but- <laughs> We might see that, and we might see that because rather than going to western Kansas where they get an inch and a half of rain a year and draining the Ogallala Aquifer, maybe that should just be dry land sorghum on an every other year basis. And my acres, just by having the ability to put water out there during those three hot weeks, can make you so much more. In other words, it might end up like the good gets better and the bad gets a little drier. And I'm wondering if maybe that's what happens. And no offense to Kansas there, Mr. Good. I was going to say my family that farms in Northwest Kansas might have something to say about that, Damien. But. Well, you know what? It's very nice that they went out there um, and uh, somebody should have t- get with somebody should have packed a rain gauge in the Conestoga wagon. And when they got to a place that the rain didn't fill a gauge up, they should have stopped and gone back a little bit eastward. Right. Yeah, there's all there's always two sides to every story. I mean, we got to feed. We've got to feed a growing world. We've got a lot of acres to, to be productive. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for everybody, but certainly we got to be the best stewards that we can of, of all Let's the Let's go to number three. And before we do that, thank you, Grant. We're not fighting here. We're not fighting here. He's a Kansas State <laughs> guy. I'm a Purdue guy. He's mad now because I said that they shouldn't try and farm where they don't get rain. I mean, I've listen, listen, I've already pissed off one of my four panelists. Hey, I'm. Before we venture any further with this great discussion with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers and uh, the paper about future of food, I want to remind you, if you like listening to the stuff we're producing here on the Business of Agriculture, go check out Extreme Ag. Extreme Ag is a collection of farming forward-minded business owners that are in agriculture, and we do trials and we do practices. I shoot their uh, Cutting the Curve podcast. I shoot videos for them. Go to Extreme Ag, no E on the front of it, extremeag.farm. Hundreds and hundreds of videos out there, podcasts. It's awesome stuff. If you want to up your farming game, check out Extreme Ag. And, and uh, I'm sure that it'll uh, be of value to you. Number three, Trent. And um, we're not going to get through all 13 of these, dear listener. If you're saying, man, we're only through a lot, three, because we're going to make it a two-part series. So anyway, it's, uh, it's fine. Increase global demand for protein. One thing that we all know if we are in the ag business, give a poor person a pay raise and they will eat better. And better, contrary to what the 2% vegan population uh, wants to convince you of, for most people means cheeseburgers, hot dogs, pork chops, turkey, steak. There is going to be an increased demand for meat, and it's because of a growing economic uh, I'm sorry, growing economic power for folks that are generally uh, in developed or developing countries. That's what this whole page talks about, right? It, I'll, I'll it, take does. it does, Damien, but I, I think that there's also the value of dairy and eggs and a few other things. But go ahead, Kurt. I think you wanted to talk about something there. 
No, I was, I was just going to de- defend the, the, you know, we do talk about plant because it's, you know, you can't have a conversation speaking about the future without mentioning, you know, the, the social narrative that's going around lab based lab grown meat. So, you know, we just have to have that as part of our conversation, but the overwhelming evidence is that uh, animal protein is here to stay and animal protein is here to stay in a very big way and continuing to grow. Having said that, there are, you know, you mentioned, Damien, some challenges earlier that we've got a couple of black eyes. And, you know, for a while, we've, we, we maybe swung the pendulum a little bit too far on the efficiency on the animal side at the expense of, of, uh, of, of some environmental, you know, uh, uh, challenges. We're correcting those, and we've done a really good job of correcting those. But that means that, you know, that's where, that's where the technology allows us to, uh, to really uh, uh, respond to this global need for uh, growing protein in an environmentally responsible way, just using some of the technologies that we're talking about today. Right. That doesn't necessarily talk about plants. That just says that we're doing this with existing animals in a very good way. Right now, Damien, our company, Topcon, we we actually have the Digistar brand, which is used both in uh, dairy um, feeding as well as feedlots, right? And and the idea of more efficiently producing, whether that's animal-based protein or milk, right, and and some of those kinds of things. And I think that uh, the the uh, Association of Equipment Manufacturers (AEM) actually has a, a forthcoming survey on the environmental benefits of dairy, right? But 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 I think that it's it's increasingly all we were recognizing here was that protein is on the uprise, right? As soon as people, just like you talked about, as soon as they get money in their pocket, they begin to, to spend more on protein and, and protein makes for, for healthier bodies, right? And, and so you certainly see that occurring and whether that's animal-based protein, plant-based protein, um, you know, lab grown, you're beginning to see a number of these things kind of come together. And we were, we were just looking to recognize that global demand for protein is on the increase no matter what happens yeah right yeah i mean and and it's it's the the initial reaction is to go straight to plant-based versus grants relatives out you know where they have feed yards in western kansas and that's actually not even you know even your your source that you quote here was from the plant food uh associate plant-based foods association and i would call that a biased source but even the biased source claims that 2.7% of retail packaged meat sales in 2020 were plant-based meats. I, I have read articles and sources that are not from the plant-based food association that put it more at about 1%. So about one to them using their number 2.7%. And this is not because it's brand new. This has been around for a while. And uh, as my buddy Grant up here, since we're starting to patch things up, he's not as mad at me as he was. Well, remember, during the pandemic, <laughs> when there was a run on food at grocery stores, you went in there, you couldn't get you a package of cheese, of, of hamburger, but by God, that plant-based shit was everywhere. Because even during a time of potentially food shortages, you couldn't sell the plant-based meats. <laughs> anyway, um, the point is, there, it's going to be there. I actually believe that plant-based protein, I'm reading about, and I have one guy on my Business of Agriculture podcast, where they're doing a more protein-enhanced pasta. So if you're low-carb or you're gluten-free, you do a pasta that's made out of like chickpeas or edible beans. And I think that that's where plant-based protein will come from. I don't think it's going to be taking some palm oil in radish, uh, uh, radish juice and trying to make it pretend it's a cheeseburger. I don't think that that's the consumer is clearly not adopting that. That's fair. Yeah. It's a really interesting dialogue. 
Yeah, for sure. Anyway, got something, Ben. I I had to suck up to the guy at the other end of the screen, Grant, because he got so mad. He, he was he was throwing things. You see that he he was he was angry at my my description of Kansas as a dry place. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And to your point, right? We're we're finding ways to uh, fit the social narrative, whether it is uh, more plant based uh, alternatives for proteins, uh, while also providing the animal protein that's out there, and then also finding the right way to help others with either dietary restrictions or just dietary preferences. You know, I've got a really good friend going through keto and, uh, you know, just every, everything counts when you look at the the diet that that person's going through. So, um, you know, having the ability to get more protein and enjoy something like uh, a tr- almost traditional pasta dish without in- consuming the carbs that fits her diet at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's going to continue to evolve. But the point is very well taken. Number three, increased global demand for protein. It, 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 it does. The only thing that's going to be a hiccup on that is recessionary times. Meat consumption does go down. In fact, I'm going to be putting a video out about this. The last time the United States saw a downturn in meat consumption was that 08 to 011 time frame. Um, but again, those are blips. Those are outliers when you look at the trend line. And so uh, usually improved economics equals more protein consumption. Number four, shorter food supply chain. Who wants to take on this one right now? Your study says we're going to see a shortening of food supply chains. It's a little bit because of eat local. It's a little bit because of what people saw during the pandemic. It's a little bit of everything, but uh, I I, I could almost see this one being not really that big of a trend because I think it's still economics is going to weigh out or, uh, but, but well, I want to hear what your thoughts are. I can take this one, Damien. So, I mean, I, I think there's room for, for both. And I think that's kind of where you're going to, I think, you know, and honestly, my family has been involved with niche farming as well um, and providing, you know, more of this identity preserved, you know, product to an end consumer with a shorter supply chain. So I think, you know, we're going to see that proliferate a a little bit. I think you see that in the more elite, you know, or higher dollar consumer today. They want that. And I think that same expectation trickles down a little bit to um, the average consumer. Um, But certainly, I think you're absolutely right to feed a world. You know, it's not always practical. So I think you're going to have this continued kind of two forks in the road where you've got, you know, the path that's more identity preserved, but then you've also got the the path where we feed the bulk of the world as well. So that's how I see it. Anyway. Well, your point there is first off, anybody that's been a student of the game for a long time, that which is the affluent consumers trend or habit does oftentimes trickle down, you know, uh, middle-class people did not um, uh, go to a, a place that was like Whole Foods 40 years ago, No, no you know, for the most part. The demographic, Walmart has organic vegetables now, you know, and it's obviously a very shiny example of organic was for a certain caliber, a very, you know, a, a very small percentage, you know, 10, 20% of the customer base. So this sort of, I want local, um, shorting the food supply chain, I don't know that it's going to be because of COVID. I mean, I think there's a shortening of the memory that'll happen here on that. I wonder if it's more that it just becomes an, an attempt to boost margins. And it's not because of the cost of transportation. It's because we can then put an adjective on this food product, local, traced to Michael Gomes farm over here that's in the next county over, and it feels good. So maybe yeah. it's just because of good old economics. Well, we're right, already starting Damien, to see I, that I, on the... 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mike, I was going to say we're already starting to see that on the meat industry side, um, especially on beef. I think where we're, we're, we're kind of cutting out some of the some of the big packers. Um, people are fr- filling their freezers with beef uh, from a local locker and a local right. producer instead of going to the grocery store every week. Can't, right. can't, get, can't, get, can't get a butcher date within 12 months of uh, within 20 miles of my farm. You can't get a butcher date for 12 months or more. Go ahead, Mr. Mike. Right. No problem. And, and so I, I, I think the, the one thing that we hadn't talked about in this conversation was consumers are getting smarter, right? Um, through, the, through things like the internet, consumers are wanting to learn more about their food and they're beginning to care about practices, right? <laughs> the other thing is, is that, is that as, we give, as we give people more data, right, that, that as they get more access to information about how it was grown and what went through that, that also breeds elements of transparency. Right. And, and, and so what you're seeing is, is that increasingly my, my daughter is a seventh generation California cattle woman. And, and so we begin to see trends like this um, that are beginning to fit into this. Right. And, and so I, I, as out in California, I see a lot of the farm to table thing um, because what you see is, is that increasingly, and I think COVID, if anything, COVID's really helped that along that people are becoming a lot more aware about how their food is produced. They're becoming more aware about about how they get the supply right and also i i think that they're spending more time in understanding uh about taste right they're valuing that and and pieces of that puzzle so i i think that there's also an element of it is consumers are getting more sophisticated and as they get more sophisticated they want to know more about it they want to know more about what's behind it and elements of that relate to one of our other ones which is elements of transparency and pieces around the connectivity well, you know what's interesting? I live in a farming and factory community that now has uh, more than one winery. And this, these are just things that you would not have seen. Roanoke, Indiana would not have had a winery when I was a boy growing up on a dairy farm in this county. And it's not, it, it, parking lot is not full with millionaires because there are not that many millionaires here. So it's that same thing about this has become cool. And is it going to replace uh, Ernest and Julio Gallo? Well, probably not. But the reality is there's an economic opportunity here that there never was before for this sort of local. Ben. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there is. And you're seeing that not just in Roanoke, Indiana, but you're seeing it a lot of places. And here in Texas, you know, there's a lot of wineries and it's, it's a pride thing. It's a buy local thing. But I want to go back to one other thing that uh, shorter supply chains actually do. Right. And that is potentially reduce waste. And you can think back to, we have to feed a growing uh, world's population and we got to do more with less. Well, one of the things is, is is potentially with shorter supply chains, we have less waste and we're able to track that a lot better, which Mike started to talk to you on traceability. And we'll come back to that when we get to that one. But okay, I I want to talk about waste also, because if you've been, if you, anybody that's listened to my stuff, which seems like only Mike has, so the screw, screw the rest of you guys. But um, I I have been forever saying, in fact, I wrote about it in my book that's over my shoulder right here, Food Fear, that if the environmental movement really cared about environmentalism, instead of trying to regulate us on our fertilizer usage, reduce food waste. We waste one third of everything we make. That is, is bad for the environment. So I agree with you about that. Shorter supply chain. It's when you're taking stuff that's coming from Southern California to somewhere in Ohio, 
the, the lead times. And then if there's a trucking glut or whatever, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of waste. Let's go ahead. Number five, we're going to do, we're going to do uh, through six. Then we're going to uh, start our episode. Number two, geographic shifts in production. Um, you're talking about this number five, mostly because you attribute this to a climatological reason for doing so uh, lead off on that, Kurt. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we can we can say, and this is this is not necessarily a statement on climate change, but it's just a statement of reality is that the the Corn Belt is moving further north. And uh, that is either the genetics are allowing it to happen or we have crops that can be grown in areas that couldn't be grown before because of you know, agronomic advancements. Or it could just be, you know, to to deal with the water issues that we spoke to earlier. It could be, you know, climate climate reasons in general. But I think the 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 general statement is there will be shifts in the where crops are grown today and it might be you know corn grown in corn grown in canada or northern minnesota where it's uh, that corn might normally be uh grown in in iowa uh they could also look at, a, at where ben's from in texas and say hey you know what what uh what normally crops would have made sense in texas it's now just a little bit too hot to grow some things in texas and so you have to you know, specialized or change what crops are growing in, into, in, into the individual areas. So that becomes really interesting when you think about how does that impact both the, infra, the you know, where crops are grown, certainly it's interesting, but then the infrastructure that supports it because we've built an entire grain system and frankly a livestock system built on unit trains from Iowa full of corn going to the feedlots in Texas. All of a sudden that changed when ethanol plants were built into Iowa. So where does that corn go to now? Well, it just goes around the corner. But what happens now when you've got yeah. that corn's growing somewhere else? How do you build the infrastructure to get it where it needs to be used? Well, did you ever notice, Kurt, and everybody else on here, that there are folks that want to attribute this to, oh, a climate change. And God knows the climate change people are about zealoty religious uh, types in some regards. And the, the reality is when we just talked about that field down the road where I shot a video um, if we grow, if, if we get one degree warmer, the genetics and the technology will keep up. I do not have any belief that I'm going to look out this window here in northern Indiana and see corn. I will, and I'll tell you why. We still get 38 inches of precipitation. That's a few more inches than we did 100 years ago. I believe absolutely that we'll be growing corn in, in, in northeastern Indiana for as long as I'm alive. Um the the challenge, like you said, is when the water then also meets this challenge. And then it's the economics. Like you said, it was you took corn from Nebraska and Iowa and shipped it down to Texas where Ben is and you fed it to a cow or a steer. <laughs> and, and and that was the model because corn was a dollar sixty a bushel. And you could do the same thing with dairy cows in the desert of California. Take Nebraska corn, put it on a train, only cost a buck sixty, and there you go. It's not the climate that changed that. Climate didn't make the dairies leave California. Environmental compliance did, you know, and cost of corn. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming together there on this one. I think this is a good topic. Yeah, just to add to that a little bit, you know, I spent some time in West Texas earlier this year and we were talking to them about what they were doing differently with their acres. And uh, one of the things they're doing is, is they're taking out cotton and they're putting in uh, vineyards or grapes, right? And a lot of that has to do with the desire to have more local uh, wine produced here in Texas. But it's also about money, revenue potential, and the opportunity to say, okay, we might get a, a cotton crop and it's going to produce X. We know we can take that same water, use a fraction of the land, and produce Z dollars. Z is a magnitude higher than X dollars yeah. exponentially. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, you'd say, well, what the risk or what about this? Well, I mean, usually those things are done, Ben, on a smaller scale. You, nobody says, I'm going to convert all 10,000 of my acres to, uh, you know, our organic arugula. I mean, usually it's, uh, I'm going to do this as an experiment and then I'm going to move on, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, right, and I, I, I think, Damien, one of the big points you've got is, is, right, the podcast is the business of agriculture. And I would say that, you know, one of the big things you see is, is that agriculture is changing. Right. And, and it's that it's that America, the American farmer, if anything, he adapts and that they are adapting and they're they're adapting to the rules as they're as they're being played towards them type thing. Yeah. Well, and we have no choice but to do so. Advanced number six, advanced food traceability helps maintain consumer trust. Uh, ben, you said something about the whole traceability. And I think Grant had something on this also. So one of you take off on this one. I'll, I'll start this one. It's okay with you, Grant. And, and it really comes down to, you know, I spent some time in California um, and, you know, one of the things is, is California produces a lot of the vegetable crops and a lot of the salad crops that we, that we all end up uh, consuming. And a lot of that stuff, there's an element of time behind it all. And every once in a while, something bad happens. And that leads into that food waste thing. Well, with traceability and tracking, it allows us to know and minimize things like waste, we can now quarantine what is uh, subjected to be potentially um, material, uh, you should say crop that needs to be, or lettuce that needs to be thrown out. That's not uh, for human consumption. It allows us to minimize that. The other thing too, is, is I think the consumer, again, we talked a little bit about the consumer wants to actually know more about how their crop or the, what they're consuming, how was it uh, nurtured and raised? Um, I think that there's something to that. And, uh, you know, I, I've got two lives, my farm uh, life here and then my suburban Arizona life. And then obviously I travel for my speaking business. So I'm around a lot of our consumers. I'm around more of our consumers than most of our producers are around them. And that's why I always say, hey, be thinking about this. Right now, they're willing to pay a premium for all that stuff, Ben, that you just talked about. Um, but uh, the prior points that were made here, usually some of these things that are a premium start to become the expectation. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. This, this premium for traceability, knowing that this organic arugula came from Ben's farm in Texas, and then it was uh, fertilized with cow manure from uh, Grant's family's farm and, you know, whatever. That's probably going to end up being an expectation 10 years from now. You know, exactly. it wasn't that long ago that you paid a premium for, uh, you know, skim milk or whatever. You know, there's every new thing you paid more for at first. Yeah, right. exactly. And it lends back to the to the shortening the supply chain, you know, and, and more consumers wanting that. This is a way of providing that transparency that you get with the shorter supply chain without maybe actually shorting the supply chain. So, yeah. So on that topic, I, I think we're going to close this uh, episode out and we'll come back with a second one for the, the next uh, of our 13 um, trends that are seen. Um, my guests here are the Association of Equipment Manufacturers uh, Committee that helped put this whole white paper together. And it's fascinating stuff. Mike Gomes with Topcon, Ben Smith with Kubota, Grant Good with Agco, and Kurt Blades, the Executive Director of AEM, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Um, last thought on this one right here is, will it be imposed upon us by a regulatory or by a processor and supplier? I mean, like I said, Right now, traceability is something we do. Is it going to be something you have to do? I'll, I'll take this one because I think it is very real. <clears throat> there may be a regulatory, but it is absolutely, it is, it is, it is uh, 
consumer demand, but probably even more specifically, it is the retailer. So yeah. let's look at let's look at what Walmart's doing mm-hmm. with their meat production business. Let's look at what Costco is doing with their meat production business. Let's look at what IKEA is doing with their meat production business and their food production business. So those aren't necessarily regulated. Those are responding to consumer consumer needs, but those are responding to consumer needs by the people that are the closest to the consumer, and that's the retailer. Yeah, and so what it might be is a license to sell. So for grants, uh, people in Kansas to be able to be to even have a market for their beef, it needs to have certain compliance and traceability components to it. So that way, Costco can say, here's the story of this beef, right? Yep. Yeah, really quick. One of the big things there is just going all the way back. So it's not just between the retailer, the distributor, and then also the, say, the processor, but it goes all the way back to the farm and even a little bit before the farm the inputs to the crop. Yeah. And you talked about food waste as it pertains to this. This would, you would think, decrease food waste, but maybe it doesn't. It's just that now we're tracing everything uh, and we're going from the source all the way to the landfill. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, c- completely. I, th- I think that's part of it. And it's it's our ability to, uh, as a society and as a whole, actually get better uh, at being environmentalists and uh, being good stewards of the earth. But every time there's a recall, I mean, think about, you know, the broad swath we take. So that in and of itself, we can point, pinpoint that better. That reduces a lot of food waste. <laughs> right. Where everybody has to go through right. the cupboard. Everybody has to go through their cupboard and see if they have something that, uh, <laughs> yeah, salmonella outbreak in New Mexico and see if you own some of that stuff. Go ahead, Mike. I was just thinking that, you know, for example, right, what you're, you're beginning to see, it's elements of not just the corn, but also the corn stover right? Where it came from, how you use it, where it goes into the process, right? The pieces, pieces that are putting that together, right? And and, uh, completely. Cool deal. All right. Uh, Dear listener, we're going to be releasing a second episode on this very thing. We're going to cover the second half of the trends. Um, Until next time, please share in all my stuff. Remember, there's so many cool episodes out there. You can share these with your friends, tell somebody that can benefit from it. Uh, But like I said, we're going to break this into two pieces because we know you're probably uh, needing a break right now. So till next time, I'm Dane Mason with the Business of Agriculture. Well, that concludes another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. This episode was brought to you by Pattern Ag. You know, everybody in agriculture understands the importance of soil health. We also keep an eye on our soil better than we ever did through advanced soil testing. But what if there was a company that provided predictive analytics? Not just checking out nutrients and all the elements that are in there, but also could tell you the degree of risk you face with disease and pest pressure. That's right. Pattern Ag can do that. They actually can tell you, hey, you're going to have a real issue here. You can preemptively, proactively treat for corn rootworm or cyst nematode or sudden death syndrome before the problem actually starts costing you yield. Go to pattern.ag. That's www.pattern.ag to find the nearest rep that can help you start doing better for your soil. (laughs) 